Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. You're listening to the It's a Monkey podcast, where we talk to interesting thought leaders about um, all sorts of different um, tech trends and uh, tech developments. Um, and we also uh, chat about uh, the news of the last couple of weeks. You're listening to episode number 62. Um, it is Friday, the 28th of August, where we are in Sydney, Australia. Beautiful, beautiful sunny day, as we always so lucky, so so frequently get to say in Sydney because we're so, uh, we're so lucky, as uh, with the great weather here. As always, we have a terrific jam-packed show lined up for you um, we have a great interview coming up uh, martin ford who's a silicon valley entrepreneur and author of an interesting book called rise of the robots here at manage flitter we talk a lot about robots and uh, how they're going to change the world and we have these great philosophical discussions and i chatted to martin who's based in silicon valley and is actually on the way to sydney for the festival of dangerous ideas next week uh, which should be interesting um, but as always we're going to kick off with the news and with me is the head of uh, product at manage flitter uh nick barker nick thanks for joining us as always i'm happy to be here <laughs> nick always uh it's been a little while since we've done a, a podcast we try to keep them up every two weeks but uh, we've had so much going on on our end that um, unfortunately the podcast is one of the things that falls by the wayside it's not our full-time job unfortunately although that would be interesting it would be cool if we could push out uh, two two podcasts a day i mean there's enough in the industry to actually um, keep that going absolutely yeah Anyway, let's chat about some of the developments. Um, interesting, a big story a couple of weeks ago was Google reorganizing itself into a conglomerate um, um, umbrella company called Alphabet, under which Google, or, or what was Google and is now Alphabet, is going to mm. have separate, distinct companies, one of which will be Google. Yeah, it's a, it's a really very interesting development. And of course, like the after the initial hype died down where everyone thought that Google was actually changing their name to Alphabet. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not actually what's happened. Essentially, they've just restructured uh, what is an enormous number of sort of different, uh, very different ventures that have been under the umbrella of Google previously under a new sort of larger scale umbrella holding company of Alphabet. So Google is going to be uh, another company that's underneath the alphabet umbrella, essentially. And um, I believe uh, the, the two Google founders, uh, Sergey and Larry, are going to be co-CEOs of Alphabet now. I'm not 100% certain. Well, they have announced the CEO of Google. Yeah. Um, and one of, the, one of the theories on why they've actually done this is, um, I mean, there's multiple reasons why they've done this, but one of the reasons why they've done this is actually to assist with staff retention and give um, people um, titles or, or, and roles and responsibility to retain some of the top talent. For instance, mm. um, the chap that they made head of Google, he was previously, I'm not sure, head of product or, yeah, or something. SVP or something, and they couldn't quite always give them the CEO. You know, and of course, the, the war for tech talent is, is crazy and you need all the help you can get. And if someone, you know, if Twitter's knocking on his door and saying, hey, do you want to come be CEO? Yeah. You know, it's quite appealing. Um, you know, now they can, they've managed to make him um, um, CEO of Google. So staff is, is, is one of the reasons. Google's turning over currently $70 billion a year um, f compared to Facebook, which is, I think, is about $13 billion. And it's market caps of about um, 450 billion a year, and trading at 31 times price earning ratio. So Google, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's it's a it's a big company, uh, you know. But um, the the landscape is littered with big successful companies that were innovative that um, disappeared. For example, Hewlett Packard. So um, I was I'm listening to Peter Thiel's book mm. Zero to One, and he talks about Hewlett Packard. Fantastic book, by the way. If you're listening and you're uh, an entrepreneur, want to be entrepreneur, it's um, it's really an interesting book. Absolutely. I mean, I really think what Google is trying to avoid uh, right now is that uh, the sort of curse of of being a publicly listed company uh, on on these innovative tech companies that have sort of exploded really quickly over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, so companies like Facebook are still sort of in that honeymoon period where they're, they're probably quite overvalued depending on what sort of opinion you have. And it means that they still have um, a lot of room to innovate and invest in these sort of moonshot 
products, whereas Google's more feeling the pressure from investors now to be more and more conservative in their decisions, make sure that, you know, they continue to grow at a steady rate. And um, in order to really fill out that market cap now with with actual revenue, uh, they've been having to go for these obviously uh, huge, you know, moonshot projects like, you know, the self-driving cars and Google Glass and all of that kind of stuff. And I think one of the reasons um, behind the alphabet restructure is so that they can actually start these smaller companies that uh, can then continue to do this sort of outside research and and not sort of feel so much of the pressure of the public shareholders wanting to get their return. And yeah, they'll have they'll have one company, Google, which uh, brings in the money and then and feeds the umbrella company, and then it's it's quite distinct separate companies. Um, you Google know, X can keep Google going X, with <laughs> Google Ventures. Yeah. You know, and um, they they will hit. I I I think they will hit another. I mean, YouTube was obviously YouTube's still under Google, is mm, it? Yes. YouTube will still be under Google. Yes, um, that's interesting. I mean, they they could have spun that off as well. Yeah, I mean, you you can just imagine though, like every single decision that's been made here has been meticulously researched by you know an army of of tax law people because <laughs> this, you know, there's there's literally billions of dollars of 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 potential tax. Um, you know, at stake here in all of this restructuring, you've got to remember that those those sort of things are always in the background. Like there's there's there has to be financial reasons for these restructuring projects as well. Yeah, I think um, if you're a Google shareholder, things remain pretty much the same. Um, mm. You get a one for one share in in Alphabet. Of course, Google's got the classic. I think they were one of the first companies, tech companies, to have this dual share structure where. Um, you get one uh, vote, I think, with the normal publicly listed shares, but the founders have a, s- a special group of shares where they get 10 votes hmm. each. I so, didn't realize that was the yeah, situation. So, so Facebook's the same, and I believe Twitter's the, is Twitter the same. They do that to sort of prevent these takeover situations where we can all get together and buy a ton of... Uh, and kick the founders and out. Kick the founders, <laughs> kick the founders out. off the board, yeah. Yeah, so they, they still maintain control. As you know, it's all about... Um, control in these in these companies and and there's all sorts of stories in the vc backed companies world where where founders lose control and get kicked out of their own companies uh, by some of the investors mm, yeah i mean the really interesting thing that uh is often sort of shielded from us just looking at from the outside into the tech world is that while there's an enormous amount of innovation uh, in in terms of actual products, at the same time, simultaneously, there's innovation in company structure and tax structure, and you know where you're incorporating and that kind of thing. The the lawyers are innovating sort of at the same speed Absolutely. as we are. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think what people underestimate is there's a lot of innovation in execution in business. People are especially um, you know new entrepreneurs are, are unduly um, obsessed with the idea. Mm. You know, the idea, oh, if only I had a good idea. But, you know, you could start a plumbing business tomorrow and and, and innovate on how you actually brand it up. Execution is executed, everything. Yeah. And it's, there's innovation along that. So, mm, you, you know, absolutely. the idea is. Um, but anyway, it'll be interesting to see what um, what Alphabet and Google, I think, I think in many ways it's going to be a little bit of business as usual. I think it's more just a, you know, a, a shuffling the decks a little bit and, and, and making sure that they can, you know, attract the right staff and manage things a little bit um, differently and turning it into a bit of a conglomerate. Um, um, so to speak. So um, that's Google um, and Alphabet. Um, another story that came out um, overnight was Apple Watch is actually doing better than than people expected. Well, I've always expected it to do well, actually. And it's it's the number two. Um, what, or, let me just pull up that article. Was it number one or number two? It was number two, yeah. Number two after Fitbit? Fitbit, yes. So Fitbit's um, the most popular wearable and then... Um, Trailing by about 30%, I think 20% in terms of units sold. 800,000 units sold in comparison. Uh, so Fitbit sold about 20, 30% more than Apple Watch last, uh, this last financial year, I believe. And of course, Fitbit um, listed as well a little while mm. ago. Yeah, and very I believe, interesting. I believe their listing popped quite nicely and did quite well. I don't know what they... Um, I don't know what they're doing um, now, Fitbit. We'll have a have a quick look. Well, the really interesting thing I think in this space, and I mean, it, it's it's um something also to think about in a big way going forward with tech companies is that all of these fitness tech companies, uh, 
they're they're becoming big. They're they're really they're really growing. But at the same time, they're nothing compared to the the real giants of the fitness industry that don't necessarily have a center on tech, like Nike, for example. Someone tweeted at um, who's the founder of Nike? I forget his name. Uh, uh, yeah, I, Phil Knight. Yeah, Phil Knight. They tweeted at um, a link to his LinkedIn profile, and he's got a real LinkedIn profile. It's That's very, interesting. It's very simple. It says something. It just says something CEO like of Nike. something. <laughs> you know, it's quite um, yeah. From Portland, Oregon, Nike, an unusual venue. Yeah, uh, it's it's really interesting though, because for example, uh, some of you might know the the very very popular app My Fitness Pal. Mm-hmm. Um, got bought by Under Armour. For a fortune, wasn't it? Yes, which yeah. is which is really yeah. interesting because a lot of these tech companies exist in an industry of their own, which is just tech. And you'd assume that they'd be bought, if they were acquired at some point, they'd be bought by Google, they'd be bought by Apple, they'd be bought by Facebook. But um, yeah, in the fitness industry, you actually have the potential to be bought by these sort of um, m- much more a- uh, much more typical sort of brick and mortar companies that you know sell clothing or sell fitness related products. It's quite interesting. Natural extension of it, yeah, and and I'm sure this. I mean, I love the space. I I um, I have a Pebble, the latest Pebble watch. Mm-hmm. Um, really enjoying it. It's essentially a notification device, um, uh, but it's fantastic. I, I I still. We bought Kate, um, one of our team members. We bought her an Apple Watch, and uh, she's she's really she's, enjoying she's it. She's loving it. I also use a Jawbone as well, um, one of the latest Jawbones. So the quantified self really, really interests me. I think it's absolute early days. I think it's a mm. huge amount of innovation. I mean, we can't get to a situation where, um, you know, we, we, we have, you know, 10 devices strapped to us, or maybe we will. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I was chatting to a couple of Israeli entrepreneurs and friends earlier this week, or and, and they're developing um, a device that can – that um, apparently at the moment it's only medical grade that you can uh, get get them, but they thousands of dollars and, and and elite athletes use it where you breathe into this machine and it and it works at um, your carb levels, how many carbohydrates and whether you need more and it's, it's and they're developing a handheld version of this yeah. and, and sort of a, a few hundred bucks a pop mainly for weight loss actually not for athletics apparently yeah really interesting yeah apparently if your carb levels are um, you know, if you need carbs and you have carbs, it turns into energy. But if you've if you've got enough carbs and you have carbs, it turns into sugar. Mm. So apparently, it's it's quite a important indicator around um, obesity and health. That's really interesting. If we um, quickly jump back onto the concept of of the sort of the Apple Watch in general, I think it's really interesting to to mention the fact that um, uh, at the moment, I think Apple really thought very hard about whether whether or not they were going to release a wearable or not you know what i mean because it's it's quite rare for apple to come in sort of late to the party and have you know samsung or an android device sort of um preempt them on a particular hardware you know type piece of hardware but i think the really interesting thing is apple must have worked out that people uh had a hole in their budget that fit in between sort of like the two year phone contract, like where they would refresh and get a new Apple device. They must've worked out that there was some point in the middle there where they could fit, you know, a two year contract on getting a new phone kind of thing. So you get your, your, your new, uh, a new watch rather. So you get your phone in the off year and then you get your watch in, in the even year kind of thing. They must've worked out that the, the average budget would fit in two Apple devices being refreshed all the time. And it's pretty expensive, the Apple Watch. It's well. very expensive, yeah. It's it's You could get a really nice um, analog watch for the... That's re- really bold of them. I mean, I'm amazed that the other watch companies, I mean, a huge opportunity for, for the tags of the world and that. But yeah, they, the Swiss companies, if there was some, if they had some kind of partnership going there, that, yeah, it'd be... A, uh, yeah, so... Um, yeah, Fitbit were number one, then Apple, then Xiaomi, then Garmin. Um, Garmin's have become very popular. I see they're doing a huge marketing pushes. Um, and even Jimmy, who's um, 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 our, our resident, and he won't mind me saying this, our resident dinosaur. <laughs> um, uh, he's, uh, but he's a runner and a big fitness buff, and uh, he, he wears his Garmin. Um, so they've, they've done a really good job at appealing to the, 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 the athletic enthusiasts. I also I, I think Garmin's occupying that same sort of space that BlackBerry used to occupy in, in sort of like the phone world. Garmin's come across as sort of like professional and, mm. and, and you know, like Rigorous rugged. and robust. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. They've got that sort of chic about them, I guess. And brand, brand cachet. And then finally, finally Samsung... 
as well. So um, yeah, look, Apple, uh, um, and of course they announced that um, new Apple iPhones on its way in yeah. September, which is going to be interesting. Basically, improvements to battery, improvements to camera, standard S model kind of um, improvements to processor, improvements to memory. They've worked it out. I mean, they, they they are so smart. I mean, they just squeeze the market and then trickle a little bit more and squeeze it and trickle yeah. a little bit more. Well, what they've realized, I think, which is just absolutely brilliant, is that they've realized that there are two types of people when it comes to tech stuff. There are people who want to get the newest thing just because it's different, the early adopters, and there are people who want to get something that is well-worn, you know, powerful, does its job really well. And that perfectly segments into their normal phone models, which are sort of like the early adopters, the new screen size, you know, the new features and the S models, which are, you know, an, an improvement on battery life for the for the pragmatic people. You know what I mean? They've perfectly divided this market into these two models. I think, I think what's really interesting about Apple as a company as well is where they've really innovated um, and, and this is where most people don't see it because it's behind the scenes. But they must have some serious innovation in supply chain management. Well, um, you know, it's one thing to have the phone and the UI and the OSX, uh, the, the operating system, etc. But supply chain management, when you have peaks and troughs and spikes and you need quality control and all these things, must be a seriously complicated business in today's world. Well, the really interesting thing is, you know, that Apple's current CEO was actually the, the guy who apparently was responsible for that. He's apparently a genius when it comes to supply chain. Tim, Tim Cook. Yeah, exactly. He, he, was, he, um, he apparently ran the whole operation in terms of distribution. And, and obviously, like, that would make sense why they, then, why they then promoted him to CEO because he would have been responsible for an enormous amount of Apple's success then, if that's true. Nice, um, nice little bounce earlier this week when the market crashed. It seemed like Apple came down to one hundred and three dollars, bounced right back to up to one hundred and twelve dollars. So this volatility in the market at the moment is uh, exciting. If people are traders, I'm I'm not a trader. I'm a long term value investor. I don't I don't ride these crazy uh, things. <laughs> you don't think you can beat the market? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not that confident. But Apple peaked in July this year, one hundred and thirty two dollars. Wow. So it's come back down a bit, but um, you know, um, you know, fascinating company. It'll be interesting to see their new iPhone, their uptake of their iPhone, um, and well, one last story, Nick, before we um, sort of take a break and and go to our interview. I don't know if you saw yesterday that there was a reply to all debacle at Reuters. Really. Amongst, <laughs> um, Th- Thirty thousand people apparently, oh my God. <laughs> and they were. And of course, what happens? Um, you know, people were hitting reply to. So, a, um, someone named Vince sent an email that ended up reaching thirty-three thousand inboxes. As hundreds of emails responses followed with people clicking reply reply all telling to people to please stop replying all oh my god it's like university employees and reporters at the news and information company took to twitter under the hashtag reuters reply all gate (laughs) apparently it made uh, twitter's trending and um in 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 many moons ago i was involved with a startup that um, was one of the first e-commerce players in australia and um some one of our external developers was testing some functionality some email functionality and um, it, it was a staging environment, except it was plugged into the live database. Ah. And she sent out an email that went out to about, I don't know, 20, 30,000 people. It's wow. a similar thing. And it made the front page of the financial, the AFR. <laughs> that's um, that's uh, pretty, pretty cool, inter- right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's guerrilla marketing right there, I guess. Yeah. And uh, we, we didn't make many friends, but th- that woman felt terrible. She oh, really, I imagine. She was a tester. She was one of these sort of specialist, not really a dev, but sort yeah. of was, was testing stuff along the way. Oh, you know? that's a shame. Yeah. War stories. Anyway, uh, you're listening to Kevin Garber and Nick Barker. We are the people in front of Manage Flutter. Um, if you haven't tried Manage Flutter, give it a go. Um, you're listening to the podcast. It's a monkey. Um, please follow us on Twitter, Monkey Podcast. Follow us on Facebook. Send us an email. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're going to be taking a short break and we'll come back uh, where, we, where I chatted, uh, listen to the interview where I chatted to Martin Ford, um, the author of Rise of the Robots. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog. 
Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast where we talk about everything relating to tech, the tech economy, the impact of technological advancements. And we like to think of ourselves at Manage Flitter as a bit of a philosophical bunch. And uh, one of the topics that rears its head very, very regularly is talking about uh, robots and artificial intelligence and when robots would wake up and we have these team lunches where there's intense debate and there's there's uh, different schools of thought of uh, when, when robots are going to wake up, uh, the impact, etc., so I was very excited um, the other day to stumble upon a book called The Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of the Jobless Future. And um, I'm very excited to say I've managed to uh, get the author of that book, Martin Ford, who's also um, based in Silicon Valley, a tech entrepreneur who um, uh, wrote that book um, at the end of my Skype line to join us uh, on the podcast. Martin, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Martin, um, firstly, um, this isn't your first book around the, um, this area. What's, what led you to your interest in this particular area of uh, tech and tech advancement? Well, I wrote my first book on this about five years ago, and the thing that, that kind of got me thinking about it is that I've run a small software business in Silicon Valley, and I've seen the impact on that business. I mean, when I started in the mid-1990s, uh, software was a pretty labor-intensive business. You know, you needed people to... Uh, produce physical media, you know, because software was shipped on CD-ROMs, and then there were people to pack all of that up into physical packages that were sent off to customers. And really, within just a few years, all of that kind of evaporated. And now, of course, software is delivered electronically, or it's just hosted in the cloud. And so, a lot of jobs for what you might think of as average people in in the software business have just kind of disappeared. And I sort of viewed that as a preview of what was coming for the entire economy as artificial intelligence and robotics really sort of gained traction. And I believe these days they're robots that um, fix themselves. So if there's something, if, if they have a proverbial screw loose or, or they need a part that replaces, they can actually self-amend themselves. So they don't even need the humans to maintain those robots anymore. Right. To some extent, that's becoming true, not just in terms of robots, but in terms of, of everything. You know, one of one of the big trends we're going to be looking at is the Internet of Things, where everything is sort of connected and able to communicate. And you're increasingly going to see, you know, smart diagnostic algorithms operating across all these systems that, that really allow them to sort of maintain themselves. So one of the myths out there is that if we have lots of robots, there'll be huge numbers of jobs for people to fix the robots. And I'm afraid that's kind of wishful thinking. Okay, so explain to me, um, you know, in our industry, I'm also a tech entrepreneur. One of the, if not the biggest challenge we currently face is a skills shortage. Um, and one of the arguments you make in your book is that um, even, um, you know, professionals such as lawyers and um, yeah, software developers will be impacted by these advancements. Currently, there seems to be a really big gap between those two scenarios. Fill me in on how um, you see that that gap's actually going to um, shrink and, if, and, and totally actually the, the field, uh, the playing field totally change. Well, first of all, it's possible for you know, a shortage of people with very specific skills and capabilities to coexist with a general, um, you know, general slack in the, in the market for more average people. And I think that that's the kind of the future we're moving toward. Um, you know, you can't take all of the average people out there and train them all to be data scientists or to have some very specific skill levels. So that's one of the problems we face. But beyond that, it's also true that, that smart algorithms, especially in areas like machine learning, are, are starting at least um, to some extent to encroach on more skilled jobs. And we see plenty of examples of that already in terms of like uh, lawyers, uh, paralegals are being ap- impacted by uh, smart algorithms that can do document review. We see um, journalism being impacted by algorithms that are capable of, of generating at least basic news stories, especially in areas like sports reporting and and uh, business reporting. So I think that as we look 
toward the future, there will be a larger and larger impact on people that do have relatively high skill levels. In other words, people who have graduated from college and so forth. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that some of the reports that they're reading in finance and sports are actually um, generated by a computer. That's right. Some of the main media companies are using these technologies, and a lot of them are not eager to disclose that fact. They don't really want people to know that a lot of their stories are generated autonomously. Um, but it is you know, a growing trend, and right now it is primarily more formulaic-type stories in, in areas like financial reporting and so forth. But the technology is getting better and better. It already goes way beyond simply being able to plug numbers into some completely standard format. I mean, it's already much smarter than that, and it's going to get better and better. I want to cover um, shortly some of the um, um, impacts on, on capitalism as a, as, a, as a sort of framework that you speak about. But before that, um, the, one of the questions that we, we, we like to philosophize on internally is, and I would like your opinion on it, is, is when do you feel that um, robots will wake up? When will they get self-awareness? Is it something that um, you know, may happen within the next five years or is it still hundreds of years away? I think it's fairly far out. Certainly, I would be extremely surprised if it happened in anything like the next five to ten years. Uh, you have heard some very high-profile people sort of warning us of the implications of that, um, particularly Stephen Hawking and uh, Elon Musk and so forth have been worrying a, a lot about super intelligent machines and how they may threaten humanity. And I don't think that that's a ridiculous concern that we should completely dismiss, but I do think that it's pretty far out. I mean, it's probably 20, 30 years at a minimum away. I think that what we see are these people, you know, giving us these warnings are really smart, accomplished people, but they're not actually working in artificial intelligence research. And if you talk to the people actually working on the problem, they're a bit more humble in terms of, you know, how far we are along with that. So I, I think that's pretty far out. I mean, when that does happen, and I believe, and I'm, I'm, you know, sort of a a, a, a a punter, so to speak. I don't have any particular expertise in the area, but I just more more just based on the fact of the the rate that technology compounds, and I just feel that eventually, you, you know, the mere processing power, um, we will, you know, the machines will wake up. I mean, it's obviously going to be a very significant cultural, social um, um, impact on society if machines actually get self awareness of any significant sort of um, degree yeah I mean if, if if that happens if machines become self-aware and and they become as smart or, or likely much smarter than human beings then I, I mean Stephen Hawking said that would be the biggest thing that has ever happened in history and I, I think that's probably right I mean that would be just an enormously disruptive change for, for one thing um, j just minimally I mean, essentially all the jobs would go away at that point. I mean, even the very smartest people with the highest level of education um, wouldn't be competitive with super intelligent machines. So, I mean, it would have a fantastic impact on employment. But, of course, beyond that, there's the question of whether the machines might actually threaten us or, or take over. And those are, are real risks at that point. There's no doubt. Even though it sounds very far-fetched and it's something that has been explored in, in lots of science fiction novels and movies and therefore it sounds kind of crazy and it's easy to laugh at it. Uh, it at that point, it would be a real concern, no doubt about it. Well, before we go, I mean, instead of going down that uh you know, slightly further down that track, let's talk about what you, you speak a little bit more about in your book of uh, professionals like lawyers or journalists being impacted. And you argue that this, um, you, you know, will drive income inequality and you, you propose some sort of um, s some remedies, some some sort of, uh, you, you know, changes to the capitalist framework to actually address these. Talk, uh, talk us through some of your thoughts around that. Well, the, the traditional solution to the impact of technology on the job market has always been education. The idea is if automation or robots take your low-skill job, then you should go back to school or get some more training, and then you can move up the skills ladder. I think that, that we're kind of running into the end game on that for two reasons. One is that you know, there's there's a limit to the capability of the average person. Not everyone can train to be you know a PhD level uh, data scientist or 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 something. That, that requires really an incredible amount of skill and creativity and so forth. And the second problem, as I pointed out, is that these machines are increasingly coming after many of those skilled jobs. In fact, it turns out that, that if you've got a, 
relatively routine white-collar job where you're sitting in front of a computer doing the same kinds of things, manipulating information again and again, that job may actually be easier to automate than someone who's got a low-skilled job that actually requires, you know, physically manipulating the environment. You don't need any expensive robots and so forth to do it at that point. So I think that we are going to run into a situation where it, it's likely that there simply aren't enough jobs out there, especially for people of, you know, more average capability. And at that point, we have to consider a more radical solution. You know, education isn't going to cut it. And I think that something along the lines of a guaranteed income where everyone in society has access to at least the minimum livable income may be the way we need to go. And there will be really two reasons for that. The first is that, of course, people have to survive economically. And the second thing is that we need people to be consumers. You know, we need people that are capable of buying the products and services that are produced by the economy. If we don't have that, then, you know, there's a real, to, to capitalism and to economic growth and to the viability of um, our economy as it exists today. You know, we need people to actually drive the economy by being able to buy the things that are produced. How's the tax base going to support that? And how, how practically do you see this actually as playing out? Well, at, at the moment, it's not very practical. I mean, it's it's certainly in the United States where, you know, we're, we're more conservative than probably Australia and certainly more than a lot of European co- countries. Uh, it's almost unthinkable that we could have this kind of a solution. But that's the paradox. I think that, that it's, un- in one sense, almost unthinkable that we could do this. And on the other, the other side of that is that it at some point becomes inevitable that I think we will have to do it. So I'm not sure exactly how that plays out. In terms of how you pay for it, obviously it would require higher taxes. Part of that would be more progressive taxes because we are seeing continuing inequality where all the income is really concentrating at the top in the hands of just a few wealthy people. And those are the people that are capitalists and in effect own the machines. And that that's something that I likely think will continue and get worse and worse. And so we're simply going to have to figure out a way to tax those people and and get some of that money so we can recirculate it. I think that there are other opportunities for other kinds of tax as well. Um, A carbon tax might be one obvious thing that we we should be doing anyway and would be one way to raise some revenue. So I think that there are a variety of taxation schemes there, but ultimately we're going to have to look at that in order to sort of make this work going forward. I mean, it's an issue that gets spoken about a lot in Australia with uh, our shrinking tax base, aging population, massive health care costs, and um, trying to get the books to balance gets harder and harder every year. So um, we, we, lucky we don't have the sort of income inequality that seems to um, be more prevalent in the US, but we certainly, our tax base uh, is under a lot of pressure. And there's even talk that eventually our nationalized health care scheme will, uh, will implode. Right. But you see, the problem is that the tax base is dependent on a vibrant economy. So if you get into a situation where there aren't enough people out there to drive the economy, to keep buying the things produced, then, you know, that ultimately will, of course, threaten the tax base as well, because that's, you know, where it all comes from. So it's really important to keep that cycle going, you know, to make sure that that the people at the bottom of the income distribution have also got access to a, a reasonable income so that they can continue to act as consumers. And that's one of the arguments for having a high minimum wage. And uh, one of the arguments why Australia has been quite successful, even despite a high minimum wage, is the people with the high minimum wage, guess what they do with that high minimum wage? They spend it and it puts it back into the economy and and it keeps on going. Whereas a low minimum wage, it's just sort of a bit of a race to the bottom and they don't have anything to spend and it actually gums up the economy and slows it down. That's right. the, the problem with that going forward, of course, is that if the jobs are increasingly automated, then, you know, a minimum wage won't solve the problem. In fact, in, in some cases, may worsen the problem because it increases the incentive for innovation. So that's why I think that in the future, we may have to move away from, you know, having a minimum wage in terms of what's paid to employees and instead have a minimum income. So tell us, um, um, if someone, someone listening, I'm sure, you know, one of the, the they're very intrigued by, um, you know, what robots are capable of these days. Give us a couple of examples of, you know, the journalist stories, uh, writing stories is the one example. 
What are some other interesting areas where robots are um, getting involved that, that people might not be aware of? I think I saw a video the other day in Japan of some, um, some nurse-type robot um, in the hospital there. Right. There are lots of innovations happening. I mean, elder care, the idea of, of help, you know, health care and elder care, you know, taking care of older people is one area that has, you know, tremendous potential. It's an area where we really need robots because, you know, almost every industrialized society is seeing huge costs from an aging population. Unfortunately, it's really a challenge because uh, in order to do that, you need a robot that's just got extraordinary dexterity and flexibility and so forth. So we're seeing some sort of baby steps in that area um, where we're really seeing a lot of progress. Of course, in one area is self-driving cars. I mean, we we're just seeing a terrific amount of progress there. And if those become viable, then that's directly going to threaten millions and millions of jobs for for professional drivers, potentially. Um, actually, you know, driving vehicles is the most common occupation for for men in the United States. So, wow. I mean, if all that's... those jobs go away, hmm. um, you know, that th th that's a big problem, obviously. Uh there's, there's a company here in Silicon Valley that I mentioned in my book that has built a robot specifically geared toward loading and unloading boxes. And this is a, a robot with machine vision that can look at a stack of boxes and figure out how to, you know, pick up the boxes and move them just as a human worker would. And this is really something that's quite new. I mean, previous, you know, robots in factories and so forth have been around for a long time, but generally they've been you know, really dependent on precise positioning and timing. In other words, they're, they're kind of tightly choreographed. They depend on a factory where everything is timed exactly and they can, they can move things and, and, you know, do things that are precisely repetitive. But as soon as you get into a situation that's unpredictable where you've got to use vision and hand-eye coordination to do things, then the robots have really fallen short. But we're now seeing real progress in that area. And this, this, system that can actually load and unload boxes based on machine vision is one good example of that of how you know the robots are really pushing into areas that simply haven't been you know accessible to this technology before and that's going to continue to accelerate and i mean it's ultimately i think going to be a huge number of jobs that are impacted both blue collar jobs that are impacted by actual robots and white collar jobs that are impacted by smart algorithms like the examples i gave in in the area of law and journalism and so forth so this is just a, a big wave of disruption that i think is going to unfold probably over the next 10 to 20 years so if uh, someone's listening to the podcast and maybe they are parents or someone's you know about to head into university what um you, you know what area of study or skills could they perhaps head to if they do have the choice to perhaps you know insulate themselves or or protect themselves obviously there's lots of unpredictability in the world but are there any obvious areas that could definitely you know never be um replaced or under threat even from you you know smart machine learning or or, the, or latest robotic innovations I, you know, there's nothing that, it, that would never be threatened. I mean, there's nothing that's completely safe forever. I mean, as we were saying earlier, people worry about the fact that the machines are going to wake up and become super intelligent. I mean, if that happens, then clearly nothing is safe. Uh, for the foreseeable future, I think healthcare is certainly one good area, especially if you're working in an area like nursing where you interact directly with patients and it needs lots of dexterity and mobility and so forth, that's an area that's very hard to automate. So I think that for the foreseeable future, jobs in that area and, and similarly in, in medicine and doctors that, that require that kind of interaction are, are probably relatively safe. Uh, in general, I think that if you're starting out and you're, you're thinking of educating yourself, you want to get as much education as you can, it's better to probably to study a technical field than, than to not do so. And, but the main per thing would be to be flexible, you know, to learn how to learn and to expect that in the future, whatever you start out doing is likely going to evaporate at some point and you may have to switch to something else. I mean, that's, that's kind of easy advice to give. The reality is that for many people, it's not easy to make that transition, especially if it, if it occurs beyond, you know, a certain age. When people get older, it's harder and harder for them to transition into something new. So, uh, you know, that's good advice, but we should also understand as a society that a lot of people will probably have great difficulty making this kind of transition. And that's one of the reasons I think that we're going to need 
you know, new, more radical policies, perhaps something like a guaranteed income eventually. Change is hard as uh, the, the um, cab drivers in, in Paris um, a little while ago definitely made very clear when they uh, caused a riot after the, uh, after the entry of UberX, or, or which I'm not sure what they called it, their Uber Pop or something like that. That's right. And that's sort of a preview of what may be coming. Uh, and that's, you know, just Uber. But imagine what it's going to be like when, when Uber's cars are self-driving and there's no human beings involved at all. Then, then I mean, it's going to be even more dramatic. And, and what we're really seeing is that kind of impact uh, really across the board, not just in driving jobs, not just in any one industry, but really much more broad-based than that. And that's why I think that you know, we really are going to have to start to think about this and have a, a conversation about it because we could be looking at a very significant disruption going forward. So how do we know that you're not just a smart algorithm, Martin? <laughs> well, at this point, you can be pretty safe that I'm not, I think. But, but you know, 20 years from now, who's, who knows? You know, I, I might be a, a machine that's talking to you. So I believe you're coming to, um, you're going to be um, visiting Sydney for the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which is happening, I believe, just on a week at the Sydney Opera House. That's right. It's uh, September 5th and 6th, and I'm, I'm going to be speaking there about, about all of this, and there will be lots of other good speakers too. So, um, yeah, I think it will be a really terrific opportunity. It will be my first time in Sydney, so I'm very excited about it. Fantastic. It's a, it's a brilliant city, and uh, spring, spring is on the way. And it's, I've been to that festival before, and I might head down if some of the tickets aren't um, sold out. And it's, uh, you know, they, they intentionally try to have a bit of provocative um, topics and discussions, and it's uh, no better location in the world. So um, I, I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Martin, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the, the It's a Monkey podcast. Martin Ford is uh, the author of um, Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. Um, you can get it on Amazon, Kindle, etc., etc. We'll put um, a link on the show notes. And uh, interesting future ahead, Martin. And uh, maybe we'll touch base uh, in, a, in a couple of years and, we're, and we'll see how the progress is going. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks again for having me. Thanks so much for your time. Bye-bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter helps you to work smarter and faster on Twitter. With Manage Flitter, you can schedule tweets for appropriate times, gain insight into your Twitter connections, grow your Twitter account, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com for a free trial. You're back with Kevin Garber and Nick Barker on the It's a Monkey podcast, episode number 62. You can subscribe on iTunes or I use something called Podcast Republic on Android, which is a really, really cool podcast app. Uh, what, what app do you use? I actually just, I do everything through iTunes. I mean, it's easy enough for me to, for, to do it like that. I don't have a specialized app because I use an iPhone, so... So it's not a big deal. So is there an iTunes app? Yeah, it just or? well, it just handles it all inside iTunes, basically. Right. Yeah, or it, music, Apple Music, whatever it's called now. I, iTunes is not one of Apple's best products. Uh, it's never really been. I honestly, mean, it's just it's just got so many bits and pieces, and it's just not totally clear what where you are and buying stuff, and the different sort of geographies gets confusing. And yeah, unfortunately. Maybe it's perhaps one of the contributors to that is the fact that Apple, it was one of the only apps that Apple's ever been forced to make a Windows version for. Because in order to, obviously in order to make it easily work with iPods on, on Windows back in the day, mm. you know, they were forced to make a Windows version of iTunes. And I wonder if having the dev team sort of split between those two products was actually the thing that was sort of uh, putting so much of a drag on it. I'm not sure, but yeah, I, I totally agree. It's It's definitely been a lackluster sort of... Yeah, user experience for a long time. Robots, Nick. Interesting, interesting area, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, like, I think one of the most most interesting things uh, here is that um, he's in town for, <coughs> excuse me, he's in town for um, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Uh, but unfortunately, I think this idea in itself, the idea of, of automation and robotics replacing people's jobs, I don't think it's so much a dangerous idea as an inevitable idea. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's the kind of thing where we've already, we've already seen it happening, you know, to, to a huge extent in, in different industries already. That being said, though, 
there was a big Guardian article that came out about two weeks ago that was showing uh, uh, across a really huge body of research that technology has actually created more jobs than it's destroyed over the last 150 years. I, I would believe that. So I don't I know if that trend that. is going to change. And this is this is the like the worrying part is whether it'll change and, and those trends will start crossing over or whether it will continue and will have unexpected new industries, you know, popping up. I think these are such complicated ecosystems and mm. such complicated networks that all are interlinked and feed off on each other that it's very, very difficult to predict. And there's all sorts of unintended consequences, both positive and negative. And there could be seismic shifts, like when the robots wake up, that could be, <laughs> you know, they could be benevolent robots, you know, that'd yeah. be wonderful peacemakers. I, or, I really hope that we have not designed them uh, to be anything like humans, honestly, although humans are arrogant enough. I think that they probably would try to do that. Yeah, but mm. it's, it's, it's certainly... Um, you know, and just because, um, you know, the Luddites have been have been wrong in the past doesn't mean the equivalent of the Luddites today are, mm. are, are wrong about a dystopian future either. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to think about because uh, obviously at the moment uh, people's interaction with technology, I think an interesting idea is to, th to think when the crossover is going to be when technology stops becoming a choice for people and starts becoming something that's absolutely enforced and there's no way to escape essentially so there are still people in modern society who can go about their day-to-day -day life with little to no interaction with what we would consider to be modern technology you know the internet computers that kind of thing um but it's an interesting idea to think about when that will progress to the point where it starts to become impossible and you have to trust machines or or algorithms robots whatever you want to describe it as with with certain aspects of your life well overnight mark zuckerberg posted a note on his um facebook that that um daily active users now hit i think one billion so it's one seventh well he's saying wow what, what, one seventh of the world is is logging into facebook every day which is quite crazy yeah which is which is quite something and so. it's really interesting to think that um when you when you think oh you know that's probably just all of the developed world kind of thing i wouldn't log into facebook every day so there are probably a decent number of people like i think the spread is I, i'd really actually like to see what percentage of people in in um third world countries for example are using facebook these days what because we're, we're a lot of people um, in in you know places like ours are unfamiliar with what the internet's really like, what the internet landscapes like in in you know developing countries these days. It's quite interesting. And um, speaking of robots and Facebook, Facebook launched their the equivalent to Siri mm. within Messenger. I don't think it's on my phone yet. I tried to find it, I couldn't. Um, so basically, we're within Messenger in Facebook Messenger. You can ask it for help, saying like, "I need to buy a wedding gift over the next few days. What do you recommend?" And I mean, is it any different to Siri or Google, the it, Google one? Yes, it definitely is. And this actually ties in perfectly with this discussion about automation replacing jobs because uh, Facebook is pitching this new assistant. Basically, it adds it automatically as a contact inside your Facebook Messenger and then you can send a message to it asking it stuff like, oh, I need a recommendation for a uh, present for my friend's daughter, I think is, is the example that they used. So what they're actually doing is some of these questions that have been answered exactly before, they're training algorithms to work out how to do it. But in the first responder case, if a machine can't work it out, they've got a person doing it. So it escalates it to a person. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And instantly you think about the jobs that would be created by that kind of situation in which it's uh, not completely powered by machines, but humans assisting machines to do their job or in reverse machines assisting humans to do their job. And that's where I think machines really shine and that's where humans really shine. Yeah, exactly. You know? Humans taking the discretionary element and then the machine doing the grunt work kind of thing. That's that's the way it's always been and it continues to to operate well in that capacity. An interesting Jimmy who who we refer to a few times in this podcast, he's quite a <laughs> philosophical chap and uh, I always say, say to him, you know, I want to live forever and so far so good and he laughs and he said, no, it just sounds, you know, he, he's got no interest in that but they, he, he would like to live longer if anything to see how all of this plays out is what he says you know <laughs> whimsical about the whole thing yeah very curious to see how it all plays out but um well one of google's um google has that oh, I, I it's 
Calico, maybe? Uh-huh. That's, that's the longevity. Yeah, Google has that longevity yeah. project, yeah, yeah, which comes in with the alphabet thing because now they can sort of invest as they want to in Calico and not not have to worry about this, the, the shareholders, you know, having backlash against that particular thing. Uh, what fun to have a company that turns over $70 billion a year. Oh, you uh-huh. could do anything. <laughs> you could do, um, I mean, if you're ever interested to see how uh, the, the planes that the founders have, they, they've got an airfield outside uh, Google that used to be a, a NASA airfield. Wow. And they've uh, been given access for their three or four jets to park it there, but they, but the condition was that if NASA want to use these jets for any sort of research purposes, they've got access to these jets. But the founders and the exec team of Google can just 10, 20 minutes, they, they're in there, wow. 767s um, going wherever. So um, yeah, it's amazing. You know, Absolutely m- amazing. Yeah. M- money buy stuff. Not, not, not that that's why we're in the industry to, to do that, but that's, uh, it, it's fun to look at these um, uber wealthy people and see the, a, the little benefits. A really funny little anecdote about that, actually. Um, people often, often uh, wonder how it is that very rich people are often able to sort of jump to the, the head of the queue, so to speak, when, when they need organ transplants. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause for example, uh, you know, there, there was a, a famous example of some footballer who had his liver replaced three times or whatever and, and mm. kept kept on drinking, eventually died as a result. But um, it turns out that the loophole there is that you're allowed to register on an organ donor list for any county in any state in, in the USA if you can prove that you can be there in under 20 minutes. So if you have a private jet and you can reach any county in any state in the USA in under 20 minutes, you can register on all of them. Yeah, exactly. You can be on all the lists at the same time, which is pretty amazing. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah. look... uh Capitalism, that's, that's, got it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole topic for another, yes. another day. Anyway, thanks for listening to episode 62 of the It's a Monkey podcast. You can uh, go to itsamonkey.com, comment on any other stories. You can also subscribe to receive an email uh, when one of these goes out. We try to get them out every two weeks. We've been a little bit slack, but thanks for bearing with us. Um, hopefully, we'll catch you in two weeks. Um, you've been listening to Kevin Garber and Nick Barker. Thanks a lot.